Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Across industries, empowering creatives tends to lead to great results because they are the engine of whatever is being created. This is true for developers, just as it would be for any sort of creative. As technology becomes more advanced and the world more interconnected, security concerns also become more pronounced too. Therefore, builders must consider security as they make their products and help operate them. Guy Pajani, the co-founder and president of SNCC, understands that security practices and platforms must focus on developers. On this episode of Future of Tech, Guy discusses how the security industry has moved to a DevSecOps mentality, where developers are brought into the security process. He chats about the importance of empathizing with users when creating products. Guy shares his motivations for his podcast, The Secure Developer, as well as for writing books. He also offers up some great advice for future entrepreneurs. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. Welcome to a new episode of Future of Tech. I'm very happy to have with me Guy Pujarni, who is the co-founder and president of SNCC. And we're going to speak about the future of security for developers. So welcome, Guy. Thanks for having me on. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Excited to chat here. <laughs> Good. I know that you also uh, have your own podcast. We'll speak about it later on. It's kind of weird, probably, you know, having your own podcast and then being interviewed in another podcast, but this is kind of uh, the world we're in. You become a kind of sore. It's like making wine and then, you know, it doesn't mean you don't enjoy drinking it as well in the, in the process. It's fun and an opportunity to, uh, you know how it is, you know, as a podcast host, your primary job is the interviewer. An opportunity to share an opinion of two is, uh, is not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Usually we start, Guy, with sharing some history about yourself. You know, how did you first encounter technology or when, when was the point in time that you've decided that technology is your thing? Sure. So you know, I was a, a geeky little kid in Israel kind of growing up. I was in Kfar Saba in a sort of a suburban city there, probably like, you know, like a Dungeons and Dragons geek and, and such in sort of fourth grade, got a, a, a PC you know, one of the sort of the old ones, monochrome ones, uh, probably, I guess, when I was sort of third or fourth grade, it was in, uh, in my house. So I think I was always kind of into technology and playing around with it, wrote my first sort of piece of software in Pascal, I don't really include logo, probably like 10th grade, 
and then uh, get into the uh, 8200s of the cyber parts of the sort of Israeli army were kind of built up a bit more of a, a proper proficiency. Before that, I was building some school portals. Portals were all the rage at the time when I was in uh, 12th grade and uh, actually was hired to, uh, to do that. So I think I was always into, into technology, uh, helped a little bit maybe by like Dungeons and Dragons fueled my uh, English skills uh, at the time, just kind of wanting to uh, read the manuals ahead of time. And yeah, I kind of all, uh, all went for there. Good. At a certain point, you're leaving the, um, you know, the, the army academy or, you know, uh, serve and go where? So when I left the army, you know, it was just the bust of the, uh, the, the bubble, sort of early 2002. And there was still a lot of, a lot of uh, options around. And I went into uh, uh, one of the first application security companies called Sanctum at the time, founded by Gide Anan. And over there, we were building some of the first uh, application security scanners and application firewalls, app scan and app shield at the time. I was in development roles. And uh, really trying to kind of teach people that this matters, you know, that they have the disease, that SQL injection is a thing you should care about, et cetera, et cetera. And that it's not all network security that uh, you should be minded. So I was in development roles and kind of evolved there. Uh, and then Sanctum was acquired by a Canadian company called Watchfire. And I moved to Canada in that process. Watchfire was subsequently acquired uh, by IBM Rational. Even back then, you know, the idea was to shift left. You know, I was sort of saying shift left back in 2002, 2003 talking about getting developers to, to build security. We can get back to that, but uh, you know, we were financially successful with our products, but not so much in getting them in embedded or sort of embraced by developers uh, at the time. And I went through a variety of development and product roles through that time, ended up with an architect, and I got the H2 to try one of my own. So I went on to found a web performance company that kind of made websites faster called Blaze. That company was acquired by Akamai, where I was CTO for the web performance business for about half of Akamai uh, for several years and moved with them to London. So uh, moved, uh, moved around a bit. And Akamai, I'm sure we'll kind of dig into, into sneak here, but Akamai and the whole kind of performance experience has given me, you can say kind of front row, sometimes actual participating role in the rise of DevOps. You know, I was a part of the Velocity programming committee where DevOps, like some of the infamous DevOps presentations talking about how John Allspaugh kind of coming up and talking about how they deploy. I think it was like 20 times a day and everybody was, oh, that's irresponsible. Nobody would ever do that. <laughs> then uh, evolved from there. Also seeing the performance industry get disrupted. You sort of saw Keynote and, uh, and Gomez as companies, if you, for those who know them, uh, kind of fall by the wayside in favor of New Relic and AppDynamics and modern applications. So through that time, got you know very engaged with the uh, the uh, DevOps community and the rise of it and the changes of it and how to build products in that context. And to an extent, that whole journey culminated in starting Snake, which is, you can say, a DevOps-minded security company, bringing those two worlds together. Great. Now, let me pause for a second and, and ask you to walk me through basic fundamental aspects or terminology items that we'll probably discuss during this talk. One is the, uh, you've mentioned DevOps, I would like to mention DevSecOps. Can you explain in few words what's the difference or why did the term came into life? Sure. So, I mean, DevOps is a, is a movement and it came from the notion of breaking down the barriers between developing a piece of software and actually operating it. It was all around 
connecting an end-to-end journey of someone writing a line of code and getting it all the way to the hands of the customer and seeing what has happened there, and then learning from that and adapting that again. So DevOps went hand in hand with continuous development, you know, CI preceded it, but still, you know, it's really all around this continuous deployment, constant iteration. And a lot of it was around this independent teams that are able to, to run with it. And in turn, that changed the ops industry and, and how to do it. In the pre-DevOps era, operations was something that was centrally controlled. It was development teams would you know, ask for a server, ask for you know, a port to be opened in a firewall, and that might be satisfied for them by a central team. And that team operated the servers, the kind of proverbial throw it over the wall for someone else to, to run it and operate it in DevOps. It's all around that end-to-end ownership, and that in turn changed how operations is done. So the ops industry has become uh, platform builders, software reliability engineers, you know, has become an organization that enables, that empowers developers to actually operate the software that they build and to build operable software in the first place. Security, for the most part, hasn't come along for the ride. You know, has a, has sort of changed, fairly centralized, fairly controlling still oftentimes reviewing a lot of the vulnerabilities, auditing, sometimes with very good intent, but kind of goes against the grain of that speed of that autonomy of it. And so DevSecOps is really fundamentally around doing to security what has happened to ops and bringing security into that fold. And so transforming security from that sort of central organization that is off to the side to something that is embedded into the regular practices of developing and operating and securing software end-to-end and changing how security is done to go from auditing and uh, local services and and the likes to platform builders and focusing on empowering the application teams, the teams that are actually building and operating the software to ensure that it's secure. Good. We'll come back in a second to the topic that I would like you to, to clarify. But before doing it, for the audience, we're holding this uh, interview through Zoom. And looking at your background, I see these sneakers or, or running shoes behind you. And I need to understand, what is it all about? Why do you have in your closet shoes? The sneakers, first of all, you know, you can't, you can't ignore the sneak and sneakers uh, element. I would say that swag is important. You know, it's uh, investing in, uh, in icon, icons and, uh, and things that you have that you're... Uh, are a little bit of bragging rights. And so that's what those are. So for everyone, for the few people who have five plus years of tenure at Sneak, they get these very unique Sneak sneakers that they can uh, show around and boast uh, for people. Uh, (laughs) One of many, many pieces of swag we have here at the company. (laughs) Okay, fine. So the second point, when we're looking at the company and your history, what made you target the developers as a community? What, what was the, you know, the point that you said, look, developers need attention? So fundamentally, with this, this motion, this change we discussed around DevSecOps, the need is for software to be secured as it's being built. And the people building it are developers. Um, and the, the challenge is that, uh, as I previously mentioned, like back in 2002, I was already saying shift left. You know, the, the idea of the fact that it's cheaper to find an issue early versus late, that's not a new idea. That's well known for a long time, but it hasn't succeeded. We haven't actually managed to get developers to, to embrace it. We haven't gotten to get security to be built into the software development daily processes. 
And probably like the light bulb moment that we had was that if you want developers to embrace security, you have to think about developers first. You have to not take a, an auditor practice and just think about how do you plug it into a development environment, but the other way around, think about how do you build a developer tool that would tackle security, but that would start from that lens of that developer first, that would start from saying, if I'm a developer and I want to uh, tackle open source security or container security or secure my code as I write it, what do I need? You know, what type of solution, what type of company do I want to engage with? And so that was the core hypothesis at Sneak. And I think is important as an industry-wide perspective, which is when you think about embedding security into development, the question isn't how do you retrofit security practices into development surroundings, but rather how do you evolve development practices to include security? You have to start from that developer lens. In Snick's case, you know, we took that guidance to really guide all of our philosophy and our our company culture and the, the colors and the logos, you know, we talked about sort of sneak, you know, the number of conversations we've had around uh, what would be the logo and what's the right color to inform someone around the high severity alert that on one hand fits the sort of builder, not breaker theme that we want from developers. On the other hand, slightly scares you. So you, you, know, you do something about that critical vulnerability you might have in your system, the go-to-market motion that is product-led and, you know, that is more common in development and rare in, in security. And of course, of course, the product UX itself are all coming out of it from that angle. And that was our bet that if you build a developer tool that tackles security to that well, developers will actually embrace it. And that that's the way to break in. That's the way to actually start that true process in which security is built into software development. A more philosophical, or if you wish, you know, maybe experience based on, on your private experience, do you think that only developers could develop good software for developers? Um, not really. I mean, I think empathy is important when you build software or build any solution. You have to empathize with the, uh, the audience. It's very common that you build something for marketers. If you look at, you know, Stripe and you look at Twilio, The practice itself of, for instance, for Stripe and Twilio, finance or billing on one hand or, or marketing and communication, those are finance or marketing needs. What the two companies have done well is that they've figured out how to tackle the developer part of that journey correctly. So you have to understand what is it that a developer needs to, to really be happy to integrate you know, some communication into their system or provide them with the best experience that they can have, assuming they already are setting out to, to tackle that. You need that empathy. I think it helps when you have some personal experience to empathize uh, with it. And so I do think developers are on a good starting point to build software for developers. Although one thing that is important to understand is that not all developers are alike. If you're You know, a, a scrappy startup and you're building you know, some, uh, some piece of software, you might not be the best person to empathize with an enterprise software developer building you know, highly security sensitive you know, financial applications. But still, it's a good starting point. I think more important than sort of saying you know, developers are the only ones to build for developers is to ensure that whatever it is that you're building, You invest in empathy. You invest in talking to customers and not just to the buyers, but to the users of the product. I think that's a more important distinction is when you think about product-led, you think about bottom-up motions, 
what it opens up is the opportunity to engage directly with your users, as opposed to have someone in the organization buy your software and have them engage with the users, and you basically get disintermediated for all the information you get. In that sense, can you give some concrete examples of things that are developers-driven in your software? There's a million uh, <laughs> of them. Uh, I'll give you, I'll start with a, with a slightly more kind of philosophical view, which is developers like depth, while security needs breadth. If you're a developer, you work in the realm of your application. As a result of that, decisions are fairly local, and especially in the empowered DevOps world, development teams make decisions for their stacks. And because the, they are the, the, the scope of the decision is just for their teams, the decisions are done locally. They're done bottom-up. You know, a team can choose to use some testing tool, some database, some monitoring tool, and all of those. And they better be amazing in those tracks because of that choice, because of that selection. Developers seek great tools for their specific stack. Security, on the other hand, has a natural need for breadth. And so is already facing a fragmented kind of risk profile and sees a lot of different threats. It's already hard to stay on top of all of those. And it's just not practical for them to now multiply that by having every director of engineering use a different tool to say govern open source security. And so for security teams, they naturally need to tackle a risk broadly. They have to think about how do I cover the majority of my applications? And that leads itself to more involved purchase processes, to more top-down decisions, because your decision now affects many, many teams. Many teams need to accept it, need to now work with this new solution. It creates a very different dynamic. And as a result of that, you see a bunch of things. For instance, you see practically all successful developer tooling companies are product-led and bottom-up because of what we've just described, and practically no cybersecurity companies Enterprise security companies are bottom-up, but developers don't like tools that are not product-led, and so they, they reject it. And if you don't do that, you don't invest in that sort of self-serve usage, in that muscle, in that quality of the product. And so it really kind of starts from there, and then you evolve it into all sorts of things of context, like when you tell a developer about, say, a vulnerable piece of library, like a vulnerable library they might be using, Log4j is a recent example, right? You, you tell a developer Log4j is vulnerable. When they zoom out, they see the app. You know, they say, okay, like, where is this library? Where am I using it in my application? Right? What might break if I, uh, if I change that? When a security person sees it, they, when they zoom out, they look at risk. They say, okay, like, which data assets might be uh, related over here? Or uh, where else, which other applications might be using this library? So that's a very different context. And if you give developers a solution that all it gives them is risk context, you're not setting them up for success. It's not the question that they are asking. So you're not giving them the right answer. So those are, there's a lot of those. And I'll kind of throw in one third because I think it's important, which is a developer's job is to fix issues while an auditor's job is to find them, right? Auditors care about fixing issues, but they, they can't fix them themselves. They find a problem and they report it and they classify the severity. They're not able you know, to, to go and change the code, change the system. That's not their kind of scope of responsibility. Developers, that's what they do. They change code. That's their job. You need to help developers. If you want to build a tool that helps developers, you have to go all the way to actually fixing uh, the vulnerability and, and, and guiding them on that path because that's the point in which their job or their task is, is complete. 
So these are just a few of many things that we had to build and ingrain into the products, into, but not just the products, but just the whole company and how it works to satisfy developers, to serve developers correctly. Great. So you've mentioned Log4j, and I would like to touch it in a second in a bit greater details. But before doing it, maybe let's speak a bit about, you know, what your company does. So, you know, everybody will be aligned and we can continue from there. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. And I've already alluded to a few examples of it. So Snake builds a developer-focused uh, security platform. Uh, we have today four different products, code, open source, container, and infrastructure as code that tackle the, those different aspects, your, your custom code, the open source libraries you're using, the containers that you're using, or the infrastructure as code with which you configure your cloud setups. And for all of those, it provides these sort of developer-focused security solutions. So it integrates with the whole end-to-end development flow, including you know, from the IDE where developers write the software through the Git where you collaborate and code review, through the build systems and kind of governing post-deployment. Throughout that time, it finds security mistakes. It helps prioritize and understand which ones matter. It helps developers fix those issues. And it helps do all of that in a way that developers will actually embrace and be proud of and sort of fits the way that they work. And at the same time, that allows the organizations to, to move quickly, uh, but be secure. We're, uh, I guess, what you would call a hyper-growth company right now, just over a thousand people growing more than doubling year on year build a, a bottom-up sort of product-led solution with, at this point, millions of developers that our platform reaches, embrace the tool, build it up, and then uh, st- start using it, make it successful, and then grow it within their organization. Great. Now let's come back to the Log4j. Do you see the industry is being shaped differently after Log4j? Yeah. So I think first, just to sort of level set on, on what happened. So Log4j, for those who don't know, massively popular library in the Java space used for logging, had this incredibly severe vulnerability disclosed in it in December, uh, dubbed Log4Shell. So we've been mixing Log4j and Log4Shell. Log4Shell is the incident in which uh, this vulnerability was very, very extreme. And pretty much if you use Log4j for the purpose of uh, logging user input, which is almost always the case because you want to log activity and things that happen in the system, then fairly trivially an attacker could get a remote command execution happening on it. The extraordinary thing about Log4j is the combination of severity and prevalence, you know, or how popular is this library. It's definitely one of those in which it's one of the more most common open source components across applications, multiplied by the vulnerability being one of the most severe vulnerabilities. And I think that's what makes it so incredibly significant. I think what, what it did is it, it really shook up the industry a lot in terms of, of a few things. One is readiness. And so a lot of organizations that thought that good enough, that doing some basic was, was enough, right? Just kind of sort of knowing maybe which open source components you're using because there's some spreadsheet or some simple scan, or you've done it for half your apps, but not the other half. That's good enough. In the case of Log4Shell, it was very clear they can't, you know, they had to actually go off and chase all the edge corners, all the places in which they might be uh, using this library because it was so easy to exploit and so severe if exploited. It really shook up this premise or this thought that you just need to dabble in it. You know, you just need to do a little bit and realize that, no, you have to be very thorough and fairly comprehensive around it. And so that's one thing that, that we see. We see 
people go from a dabbling perspective of saying, hey, I'll start this out. I'll just focus on these specific apps and things like that to people taking a much more comprehensive approach to it. So that's for organizations and for companies. The other thing that it did is in the, in the open source ecosystem, it actually fueled an existing fire uh, around supply chain security. Uh, and so over the course of the last year, we've had various issues related to software supply chain security and the fact that today software is built on, on a chain of dependencies. You know, ironically, during 2021, we've also seen physical supply chain uh, issues and, and we've seen how the world is so interdependent and how shipping in China affects you know, whether a farmer in Iowa can you know, ship their soybeans correctly. It's, there's a lot of interdependencies and we're all experiencing it. Similarly, in software, you know, we build on the shoulders of giants. You know, we have a lot of existing components, whether it's SaaS services, open source components, or, or others. And that's the reason that we were able to produce technology and solutions so rapidly. In the world of open source, there's a really tricky ownership question. Log4j is a good example of it. It is maintained by effectively volunteers. It's actually well-maintained. It's under the, the, the mandate of the, uh, of the Apache Foundation. You know, it is... Even this specific issue was actually handled uh, reasonably well. You can poke holes at a few specific things, uh, but there's, there's a real challenge around knowing the assurances or the comfort that you have that the components you are, you are using, have they been vetted with security? Could have this problem uh, been found ahead of time and prevented? And is that also true for the other 2000 open source components that you're using? But also, and we've seen that in solar winds and uh, code call over the last year, we've seen in the supply chain attacks, there's also the whole question about what happens in the, in the journey between that open source component being written and you consuming it. Do you know you're actually getting the open source component that was, was intended, was created? Do you know that none of the maintainers are malicious? So all of that conversation has been going for a while and Log4j and SolarWinds were probably the two primary drivers in it. And there's a lot of activity going on right now uh, with the Open Source Security Foundation or OpenSSF uh, under the Linux Foundation. I'm, a, I'm a, on the board of that, Snake is a premier member. We've seen the White House issue an executive order early in the year and just now gathering a group to discuss post log4j, you know, what can be done about open source security. So there's definitely a lot of urgent activity happening right now in the industry around supply chain security and open source security in particular. Yeah. And this definitely is something that, uh, as you said, the industry must address. Um, on one end, we're all dependent on it. On the other end, we cannot uh, live with the current uh, situation. Now, you've mentioned several products of yours. What about serverless? Is this something that you're uh, looking into or considering as a potential area of growth? So I think serverless is, is part of a, of a continuum. So at Sneak, what we do is we think about applications from the cloud-native scope. We call it cloud-native application security. So in the pre-cloud era, uh, application security was really some code and some libraries sitting on top of that centrally managed IT stack we touched on before. Developers couldn't really control the infrastructure layers. They would open a ticket, they would get something serviced. In the cloud era, they control many, many more layers of it. And so, you know, if you think about containers, instead of again, filing a ticket and getting a VM provisioned for you, and maybe someone centrally patches that, that VM over time. With containers, you're defining that container. Uh, you're, you're defining the operating system you'll use. You'll 
in your repository. You're applying it through a build. You're patching it by running the build again or modifying your Docker file. So it's part of your code. Infrastructure as code does the same for, for a lot of layers of infrastructure. And so I think what happens with, with serverless, it's a part of that same mix. It moves some of the responsibility, like the operating system patches and things like that, to the platform itself. And it leaves other infrastructure-related decisions at the hands of the developer, like permissions, you know, what's allowed to, to run or what's not, or vulnerable libraries that may be within that, that system. So operating system dependencies will be patched for you by the platform. But if you're using a vulnerable Node.js library, that would still be your responsibility. So we, we have a huge number of serverless developers using Sneak to secure their serverless applications, and they track it throughout the pipeline. But I don't know that from a security lens, you need a serverless security solution or a serverless product. What you need is you need to think about the full scope of the application uh, and securing it. And I think what happens with serverless is that there's more independence. You know, in, in container, maybe there's some platform team that is dealing with their Kubernetes deployment. And maybe even if you should have cared about what's in your container and you didn't, they might catch it for you. And maybe in serverless, there isn't. You're a little bit more on your own. Nobody's supervising. Um, and so you should worry about it. I think over time, it would be a mix. Uh, and we just need to think about end-to-end securing of the app, going all the way from the code and the libraries that you're using to the infrastructure that you provision that you run on top of. Got you. And do you believe, or if you look into the future, which is kind of also the future of not just the industry, but maybe more specific Sneak, do you see this as something that you will grow into or expand your reach into those fields and, and start looking into other areas as well? Yeah, I mean, Snick's, Snick's mission is to help secure software in all shapes and forms. And so in that sense, anything that a developer touches, you know, we, we think it's within our uh, remit, within our mission to help them secure. Really, you want to ensure that uh, security is done close to the decision, right? So in the context of, of software, when you're building the software, that's when you're making the decisions that when you might, you might make the security uh, mistake, that's where you want uh, the security solution to be. So definitely for serverless applications, it's an area we're investing. We have, I forget the exact numbers, but I think it's in the order of magnitude of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of serverless projects already uh, being secured by the platform today, some open source, some within clients, and we'll continue to invest there. I think it goes further. It goes, serverless is, is within a continuum of control for developers. So if you're a Salesforce developer, you have less control maybe than someone building JavaScript on Node.js, but maybe more control than some even lower level no-code platform that you're doing it. And generally, the more rope you get, the more possible it is for you to hang yourself with. And so we're here to help you identify the security mistakes across the end-to-end journeys. Serverless is already within. It's not an, I don't perceive it as an expansion because it's something we already do today. If you're building a serverless application, we will find if you're making security mistakes in the code, we will find if you're using a vulnerable library in it, we will find if you've misconfigured an infrastructure service in your infrastructure's code files. Uh, and so all of those things are things we will already find. But we will expand into even lower code utilization as long as there's enough rope or enough flexibility in the platform that developers might make security significant mistake. 
I'd like to, uh, you know, deviate a bit and, and ask you a few uh, personal questions before we dip again into the technology aspects. You have your own podcast. We've mentioned it earlier, um, The Secure Developer. What made you, you know, start a podcast? Uh, was it a personal interest? You wanted to uh, make sure that everybody hears about you. What was it that drove you to start it? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, for, for starters, I think I started the podcast because it was an opportunity and we wanted to try it out. Um, it was definitely not about having people hear me, in fact, in my podcast. So the podcast is called The Secure Developer. And most of the time I host security leaders, almost always security practitioners, CISOs or heads of product security or such. And I interview them about how their teams are structured, what's on their mind, techniques that they've learned and such. And for starters, it was, it was an, an attempt. You know, we joined a thing called Heavybit, this accelerator on the West Coast, and they had the setup to make it easier logistically to get the podcast up and running. So it was a good thing to, to try out and a good excuse to reach out to security leaders and uh, start engaging and kind of building a relationship with them uh, by having them come along and in a very like non-vendory fashion, uh, just sort of share their practices. Pick their brain, what, what should be the next feature of your uh, product? <laughs> so some of it is definitely like over time, basically I've really grown to just enjoy the conversations. I mean, I get a chance to bring a smart person on board, ask them a bunch of questions that I find interesting and then air that and give them a stage and then help the community in the process, learn and share. I think a little bit more strategically, the security industry is poor in sharing. You know, when you think about DevOps, a lot of what we do, a lot of what I believe needs to happen in DevSecOps is modeled after DevOps. And you look at DevOps, one of the key things that have uh, helped it shine is the fact that people were willing to talk about failure. Today, every DevOps conference has people coming on stage and talking about that horrible outage that they've had and all the mistakes that they've made in the process. It's very hard to talk about a breach. You don't really see people coming along and saying, hey, Look at how terribly I got breached and how all the mistakes that I've made, there are legal implications as customer data. So it's, uh, it's much more problematic, but we need it. We need some conversations about learnings, about practices, about things that you've done that are different. And so a friend of mine to uh, exactly to talk about, uh, you know, things that, that you've learned that you've changed. So the podcast is a part of it. We also run, we've actually acquired a conference, which was an unusual move called uh, DevSecCon. We've done that, I think it was a good three, four years, three years ago, maybe. And we keep running it as a, as a, a non-commercial, you know, we have competitors sponsoring the, um, uh, the event. And what it is, it's a platform, an online and in pre-pandemic days, and we'll come back to being also a physical event to share learnings, you know, for people to come along and talk about what they've done well, what they've done not, different tools, different things they open sourced. So for me, the, the podcast right now is just a great way to to get security leaders to share their learnings so that we can all learn from it. And, you know, I find I keep learning, you know, like I keep getting a better understanding of the right techniques and, uh, and approaches to do it, just getting different philosophies around anything from security education to, to modern product security and cloud security to what might happen on the legal scene. In fact, I even had the uh, founders of uh, CodeCov come and talk about their breach, uh, which is you know, precisely that thing we don't get a lot of. Uh, and share uh, some of uh, what that felt like and how did they know what to do and when did they not know what to do <laughs> and, uh, and where that came along. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. You also wrote a book, one of the longest titles I've ever seen, Cloud Native Application <laughs> Security, Embracing Developer, First Security 
for the cloud era. You know, if you read the title, you, you almost uh, read half of the book, but uh, <laughs> what drove you to write a book? It's actually my fifth book. Uh, so I've, uh, I'm, if, if it wasn't obvious, I'm a talker uh, and I, uh, I like writing. I also feel like when you need to explain something, you're forced to distill your thoughts and therefore you better understand it because you have to, you have to uh, explain it you know, concisely and, uh, and in, a, in a logical way that, that makes sense. The reason for the excessive title is it's cloud native application security, but it was very hard to decouple that from the dev first security approach, which turned into a somewhat excessively long title. But I think for me, it was really around getting on paper the thoughts about cloud native application security. What is it that, that you should think about when you change your uh, view of application security from the old world of just code and libraries to this world in which it includes the infrastructure and end-to-end services? How should you rethink priorities? How should you rethink how you tackle it? All your former books are also about security? Uh, I think I have three books. Is it six books that I've written? My first book was Responsive and Fast, which was a web performance book. Uh, and then High Performance Web Images with a few co-authors. Both of those were performance related. And then three on security. Securing open source libraries, serverless security, a CLAD model. So actually like CLAD, uh, a model of how to think about code libraries access and data, which are the four things you still need to secure in the world of serverless uh, and cloud native application security. If you like writing and you like explaining things, I actually find writing short books. These are, except for the second one, most of these are relatively short books. They are, you know, call it 50 page, uh, 50, 70, something like that. Um, I forget exactly. So long enough to invest in, but short enough to be digestible without uh, sacrificing your weekend. <laughs> good, good. So no poems or, uh, you know, like... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> poems are not my thing. No, I don't think I'd be very good at that. Okay, good. There is a, a niche thing that I still need to ask you about technology. The world is moving into what we call multi-clouds. So people will not necessarily deploy on a single cloud. You'll see more and more we're seeing more and more enterprises deploying, you know, their software on, on various clouds. In an environment that companies will consume software coming from different clouds, is your software being, you know, will need to address, you know, multi-clouds with the same technology? Do you need like, uh, you know, four different flavors for four different clouds? How does it go? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So in general, I think infrastructure will, will be abstracted and will be fragmented. And I think that will continue to happen because uh, technology moves fast and because different approaches are better for different needs. Uh, and so it could be that one provider is better for one application and another for another. And then on top of all of those, there's the redundancy needs and, and just the risk management that leads people to multi-cloud. So I definitely foresee the fragmentation in the DevOps space and specifically the use of multi-cloud uh, to just grow in adoption, not, not decrease. From Snick's perspective, you know, I mentioned a little bit the depth and breadth. For every developer, you, know, we, you, you really need to feel like you are designed and optimized for their specific surrounding. And so because we are a developer-first company, we are a depth-first company. And so what we do is we build deep solutions and any, all of our products started as narrow, but deep products that were excellent for a specific stack or a specific uh, use case and need. 
And then once we feel like we've nailed the experience, we expand to support additional stacks. Uh, and that's the approach that will continue working. Uh, so for instance, in Snake Infrastructure's code, which is closest to cloud in our portfolio, uh, we started with just supporting Kubernetes and Helm charts, and then we added Terraform, and then we added CloudFormation, and within Terraform also the rules have expanded to support more clouds. We didn't have all of them out at the gate. And so for us, this need to satisfy breadth and to go towards the long and somewhat endless list of stacks that you could support, that's always the, the reality, and we'll continue doing that. What we have done recently is uh, we've launched the Sneak Apps platform. Uh, and so people can extend Sneak now with apps, and that helps integrate whether it's tools within the development chain or it is actual kind of technology pieces that we don't yet know to assess, you can add those, you can integrate those into Snake. So you can still have, if Snake's default supports 90% of your stack, you can use Snake for it. And if there's some 10% that it doesn't, it could be the community has built things or the partners have built things that you can do to extend Snake, or you yourself can even build or integrate whatever it is your niche tool is while still having the broader practices work on top of Snake and benefit from the, the overall kind of security intelligence and application intelligence that we provide. I'd like to speak with you about, uh, maybe, you know, this is part of uh, our season, we call it the unicorn season, about companies that were able to hyper-grow and, and be very successful. From your experience, what are the ingredients that are differentiating a good company from an excellent company? Or what are the, uh, the things that you would like to point out, or some of them at least? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the sum of them bit is probably the most important, which is there isn't one thing that if you do that one correctly, uh, you just sort of magically happened. Um, at the core of it are the people and the market. And so if the market is not a big market opportunity, it doesn't matter you know, what, uh, what, what problem is it that you're doing. And there are a lot of startups that start from a very real and interesting pain but they don't really think about where is it headed? You know, how can it be big? And so I think the first bit that you have to assess is the market opportunity. For Snake, for instance, the opportunity in the seed slides you know, at the very beginning was developer reach multiplied by security spend. And that's a big number. It doesn't really matter how much you count it. You know, that's a big number. You can be more or less of a believer that we can actually tap into that market. But if we do, there's no arguing that that's a big one. And, and so I think it's important to, to have that big vision. And I, I talk about, and I believe that you need big vision, small steps. So you need a combination of this very big destination, but then you need to understand what is the first step that you do, that if it ended up taking three years instead of three months that you originally thought, you're not going to regret doing it, that it's still the right step in it and try to roughly kind of chart a path that shows how if you've done this step, a very inevitable next step would be this, and a very inevitable next step would be this, because you're so strongly positioned over here. If Snake is already connecting to your repository and already scans your open source manifests, um, it, it's very easy for us to then go from there and scan the container files you know, and, and expand from there. And if you already understand all these different moving parts of the application, then it's easier for us to maybe provide non-security insight on it and do things like dependency upgrades or best practices. And so there are a lot of these things and there's, the journey goes further. But I think you have to start from that market's destination. 
And then on top of that is really around people and people get split into two. One is you need to think about the people themselves, just quality people. You need to think about diversity, diversity of perspective, not just diversity and uh, different paths. For Snake, it was London and Tel Aviv as this sort of two-headed monster that we started by design said no team will be co-located. It's not an us versus them. It's not that X is done in Israel and, and Y is done in the UK, but rather teams work together and basically tapped into very different styles. And in Israel, there were people with a certain uh, bias for anything is possible, sort of fearlessness, you know, depth of security and, and some technology from the London ecosystem brought a lot of product methodology and, and developer orientation and, and UX uh, uh, knowledge and maybe, maybe some architecture skills. And so the combination of those two teams uh, is really shined. So you have to think about the people themselves that you bring and the methodologies. How do you work with them in a way that empowers them? Do you consider yourself as an Israeli or as a, a London person? <laughs> Dude, I'm, a, I'm a, a, an Argentinian, Israeli, Canadian Brit at the moment. So I've, uh, I'm Argentinian heritage, born and raised in Israel, lived a decade in Canada and now live in the UK. So I think I'm a global citizen. But, uh, and it's okay. I mean, I think that makes is what, uh, what makes it interesting. So I think really fundamentally market and, and people and ensuring that you invest in those, that's what gets you to the right point. And then, yeah, you need perseverance and you need luck. Uh, and, you know, I like to say that you can, you can kind of anticipate market timing plus minus two years, but plus minus two years is life and death for a startup. And so there's definitely an element of, did you time it right? <laughs> did you persevere correctly? That part is a little bit out of your hands. So brace yourself for an adventure if you're, uh, if you're trying it out. From your past experience, if a person wants to take the journey and to either become a founder or you know, team up with a few other individuals and become a co-founder, what would be a message or a lesson that you would like to share with him based on your history? I think um, startups are hard. Uh, and what they do is they, they're a roller coaster. So the highs are very high. The lows are very low. And you can have a dozen of them in a given day. And they're not necessarily proportional to the success or the, or the failure. You could not have a customer succeed or even just like say the wrong thing and you can be in a it's a pretty, pretty uh, low situation, but the highs are really high and you can equally be, you know, super thrilled and, uh, and high on it. So I think you want to know that you are ready for something like that. For example, what other roller coasters are happening in your life at the moment, right? Is it, is it the right time for you to do it or not? You know, how keen are you? Do you have the sort of the, uh, the ability to now devote yourself to this for, for a few years? So you just have to be indeed braced for this adventure and just be ready for it. There's never a convenient time. Startups are not comfortable. I believe that if you're comfortable, you're not growing. So I don't think that's a bad thing. You want to put yourself in, a, in an uncomfortable position if you want to personally grow. But you just, again, you need, to be, you need to be ready for it. And then the one more thing, like people fuss around fundraising and dilution and you know, all of that jazz. My view. What I think for myself is that the most precious asset that I have is time. And really for me, if I think that it is faster to get to some destination, um, if I raise more or if I bring this person or if I give up this equity, then I'm for it. You know, that's what I want to get done. It doesn't mean that you just need to raise as much as you can, as quickly as you can. That doesn't necessarily make you go faster. You have to be smart about it. 
but also like I think time in so many aspects you know time is uh is is your most valuable asset market timing your personal time your the amount of time you have at work versus time at home uh with your with your family and so saving yourself time moving things faster is something that i personally put high up on the list as a closing question i'd like to piggyback on your uh tail answer and, and ask you how do you balance between your work and your family life and hobbies if you have any beside writing books and airing your podcast <laughs> so someone talked about like work-life balance is a bad name it's more like work-life integration i think that's definitely correct for me but i try to put a few hard lines so for me uh if i'm not traveling which recently was a lot but at the beginning i was traveling a lot you know then then i would have breakfast with my kids and i blocked off uh, from sort of 6 30 p.m i would leave the office i would head home i would have dinner with my kids and oftentimes at 9 p.m i'd be back at the computer and work for for another two or three hours but those were hard lines i would rarely rarely break them similarly i did not fly over the weekend you know even if i had heavy travel i would take the red eye i would you know fly back the you know do back-to-back trips i, I try to avoid them but really You know weekend time is family time and I want to be home and I want to be there with the family and so those for me are hard lines I don't know if my hard lines are sufficient for others you know you have to do it but you have to you have to pick those lines every time I would deviate from them I could feel it and I think it's hard so I don't think there's a bit of an ethos of you know you need to give it all you know you need to uh, uh, you know sacrifice family you need to have gone through a divorce you need to have done those you know otherwise you didn't try hard enough you know in the startup I think that's that's fully like that's pure wrong I don't think it's good for the business I don't think it's good for yourself and I don't see why people would do it so I think you have to just define your lines and then ensure that you play with them and 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 keep assessing it uh, you know I'm uh, fortunate to have an amazing wife who was sort of supportive and encouraging throughout the journey and you know we keep talking about this you know I feel communication is at the core of, of pretty much everything you know in when you work and so if you keep talking about it and you keep defining those lines and and you're true to it it's okay you'll find the uh the right paths so it's not easy it's an adventure <laughs> but as as we talked about I don't think comfortable is what I was aiming for look I loved your answer. The only flaw I found in it is is that you defined it as integration. What's the integrated? Uh, you know, technology people will find a way to integrate it better or to start uh, developing you know <laughs> workarounds around it. So yeah, you know, but the hacks the hacks apply here as well, you know, finding the paths to do it, you know exactly. Guy, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hope seeing you face to face next uh, time I'm in London or you're in Israel. for listening to future of tech if you like what you heard and want more make sure to subscribe on apple podcast or your favorite podcast app and if you have any comments or questions feel free to write to our host avishai charlin directly on linkedin you